Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, Joshua chapters one and two. Well, this week we open the book of Joshua. Now, our first three weeks have been spent on sort of binding together the history of Israel to help us understand what God has done to lead Israel to this momentous happening, the possession of the promised land. It's around 1300 BC and Moses has died. He climbed Mount Nebo, was given a panoramic and apparently supernatural view of the promised land by the Lord before he passed away. Actually, much in the same way that the Apostle John was carried away in spirit to be given a view of heaven and a peek into the future. And somewhere on that mountain, Moses was buried. The last words of Deuteronomy say he was buried by God. And to this day, no one knows the precise location of his grave. I find it interesting that the two mediators of God, no one is sure exactly where they were buried. Isn't that interesting? Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of Adonai, Adonai said to Yahushua, the son of Nun, Moshe's assistant. Moshe, my servant, is dead. So now, get up, cross over this Yarden, you and all the people to the land I'm giving to them, the people of Israel. I'm giving you every place you're, you will step on with the sole of your foot, just as I said to Moses. And all the land from the desert to the Lebanon, to the great river, the Euphrates, all the land of the Hittite, and on to the great sea in the west will be your territory. No one will be able to withstand you as long as you live. Just as I was with Moshe, so I will be with you. I will neither fail you nor abandon you. Be strong, be bold, for you will cause this people to inherit the land I swore their fathers I would give them. Only be strong and very bold and taking care to follow all the Torah which Moshe, my servant, ordered you to follow. Do not turn from it either to the right or to the left. Then you will succeed wherever you go. Yes, keep this book of the Torah on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you will take care to act according to everything written in it. Then your undertakings will prosper and you will succeed. Haven't I ordered you? Be strong, be bold, so don't be afraid or downhearted, because Adonai, your God, is with you wherever you go. Yahushua instructed the officials of the people to go through the camp and order the people, prepare, prepare provisions, because in three days you will cross the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land Adonai, your God, is giving you. To the Reubenites, the, the Gadi, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Yahushua said, remember what Moses, the servant of Adonai, ordered you. Adonai, your God, has let you rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock will stay in the land Moses gave you on the east side of the Jordan. But you're to cross over armed as a fighting force ahead of your brothers to help them. Until Adonai allows your brothers to rest as he allows you, and they too have taken possession of the land Adonai your God is giving them. And then at that point you will return to the land which is yours and possess it. The land Moses the servant of Adonai gave you in Aver Yarden to the east towards the sunrise. They answered Yahushua, we will do everything you've ordered us to do and we will go wherever you send us. Just as we listened to everything Moses said, so we will listen to you. Only may Adonai your God be with you as he was with Moses. If anyone rebels against your order and doesn't heed what you say in every detail of your order, he will be put to death. Just be strong, be bold. 
So lest there be any doubt as to Joshua's position of authority over Israel and Moses' unique status before the Lord, it's stated here in the first verse. There we're told that Moses was the servant of God, servant of Yehovah, actually it says, and that Joshua was a minister or an official or perhaps a steward of Moses. Now, the term servant of God was a very high status, reserved only for a handful of men in the Bible. And later it was actually synonymous with the term prophet. Moses was the supreme mediator of Israel, even higher than the high priest, and Joshua was Moses' assistant. It would be wholly incorrect to say that Joshua replaced Moses because the position of mediator in its highest form was not handed down to Joshua or to anyone else for 13 centuries until Yeshua, the Son of God, the anointed one who would be pierced and die for the sins of all men, appeared. Okay? And although both Moses and Yeshua were mediators, of course, Yeshua was yet another step higher because he was and is God and Moses was not. Now, Joshua indeed would perform some acts of mediation between Israel and God, even being referred to sometimes as mediator. So were the high priests at times referred to as mediator, but, but not in the position of Moses. Okay. Yet, Joshua was the supreme human authority over Israel as of Moses' death. And he was the Lord's choice, and of this the Bible leaves absolutely no doubt. Now in verse 2, Joshua is told that now that Moses is, has died, arise and lead Israel to cross over that Jordan. Now this instruction would have come about 30 days after Moses' death due to the standard 30-day mourning period during which time Israel stayed put. Now, further, we're going to eventually be told that one of the first things that Israel did after crossing over into Canaan was to celebrate Pesach, Passover. Since we know that Passover takes place on the 14th day of the first month of the year, it follows that Moses died a little more than 30 days earlier in what month? The 12th, right? Just like for us, January follows December, right? The first follows the 12th. So in the 12th month of the year that just concluded, Moses died. Tradition is that Moses died on the seventh day of Adar the twelfth month of the Hebrew calendar. All very logical. Now it was necessary for Moses to die before Israel crossed over into the Promised Land because this arrangement was a divinely ordered punishment for Moses for breaking faith with the Lord when Moses smacked a rock with his staff in order to bring forth water to fill a need for the Hebrews at that time. But he had been instructed by God to speak to the rock. That is, the point of emphasizing Moses' death in these opening passages was needed to remind the people that Israel was bound not to enter the promised land of Canaan until Moses was gone. Well, now he's gone. Okay. It's also important for us to know that before Moses died, he officiated over a name change for his protege. Okay. Hoshea, son of Nun's name, was changed to Yehoshua. Okay. In English, we would say that Hosea became Joshua. Okay. In Hebrew, Hoshea means he saves. And Yehoshua means Yah saves. Yah, Yeh, it is simply a contraction for Yahweh or Yehoveh, depending on whatever your favorite pronunciation of 
God's personal name might be. The thing is, it's identical to our Messiah's name. Yeshua or Yahshua was but a later way of saying Joshua in Hebrew. Well, the first five verses of Joshua serve as kind of a prologue in which promises and definitions definitions concerning the land that God intended for Abraham's descendants to inherit are summed up and repeated from earlier pronouncements in the Torah. Now, there, there were two sets of land uh, that we need to be aware of that were involved here. There was the actual promised land that was reserved for Israel alone that lay on the west side of the Jordan River. This area right here. And then there was the land that the Lord permitted part of Israel to possess, although it was not part of the promised land, and that lay to the east of the Jordan River. The land that lay to the east was now the official territory for the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of the people of the tribe of Manasseh. Half of the tribe of Manasseh said, we're going to stay here. The other half said, nah, we're going to the other side. Okay. Now this land Moses used to be a staging ground from which to attack Canaan. This land to the east of Jordan was not intended for Israel. But those three tribes had preferred to stop and settle down there rather than move on. Okay. Moses allowed it on condition that those three tribes would provide a substantial number of troops for Joshua's army as it moved upon the inhabitants of Canaan. That Moses led the people in conquering the land east of the Jordan is proof of itself that it couldn't have been part of the promised land since God had years earlier decided that Moses was prohibited from ever setting foot on the promised land. Okay. Verse 4 now gives us a broad definition of the region that Jehovah meant for Israel. And it started in the south, started at the south, um, right about down here at, at Kadesh, right, southeast corner of Canaan. The Lebanon, yep, the same Lebanon that we know about today, right, was the general uh, northern boundary, right up in this area. So understand that the Lebanon that we're talking about today is actually included as part of God's promise to Israel. Right. To the northeast, the boundary was the Euphrates River. You see it meandering along here. Of course, you all know where that is today, don't you? All right, in Iraq. The western boundary was the Mediterranean Sea, the whole length of the coast as it pertained to Israel. And, and one of the boundary, and of uh, of all of the boundaries that were given, the one that's the fuzziest, the least defined, is the one to the north, because very probably it meant actually to go beyond the current borders of today's Lebanon. Now, there's also this reference to all the land of the Hittites in verse four that has caused some amount of disagreement among scholars because the Hittites were a large, powerful, wealthy, and advanced civilization that occupies what is today Turkey, right, all up in this area. Um, the Hittites were for all practical purposes an empire that dominated the, the, that, that region. Um, most experts no longer think that the area of Turkey is what's being referred to when it speaks of all the land of the Hittites. Rather, it is well recorded that the Hittites had several settlements and outposts all throughout the land of Canaan, and it was those many scattered settlements of the Hittites that were actually being identified. Now, in modern terms, and according to modern national boundaries, 
That, this means that the promised land set aside for Abraham includes all of modern day Israel, all of what is called the West Bank, but is a, this, is, this is a really bad, terrible, politically correct name for what is actually Judea and Samaria. Okay. Lebanon, most of Syria. Okay. It also incorporates a little more of the Sinai than Israel currently possesses, but not much really. Because the southernmost boundary is generally agreed to be a, a, a generally dry riverbed called Wadi El Arish, which means the brook of Egypt. All right. And it's, it's located only about oh, 20 miles south of Gaza City. You're right, right around here. However, that does mean that the formal promised land territory indeed includes also all of what today is referred to as the Gaza Strip. Okay. That the boundaries to find in verse 4 are those that God has set apart as the land for his people Israel is undeniable. That some church officials argue that the promised land does not include Gaza or Ashkelon or Ashdod, currently Israeli held towns. That is, that, that this land that belongs to Israel should not include Judea and Samaria or the Golan Heights, which was a part of Syria. All right, is the epitome of ignorance of the plain wording of the Bible. Right. It's an apostasy from the word of God. It's flat out disbelief and rebellion, or perhaps it's a combination of them all. I don't know. Let me make it perfectly clear, because there's going to be people listening on the radio, there's going to be people listening all over the world on the internet to what I'm telling you today. Okay. The Seed of Abraham Ministries, Torah class, Holy Land Marketplace, and whatever other ministries that the Lord may ever see fit for us to undertake stands upon the Old and New Testament versions of the Promised Land. All right. And we accept no other. Okay. It all belongs to Israel because it all belongs to God. Okay. No amount of geopolitical realities, no amount of contempt for the Jewish people by too many in the church, nor a desire of much of the Arab and Muslim world that neither the land of Israel nor the Jewish people should continue to exist, or even of our governmental leaders and politicians' propensity to, comprom to compromise with and appease uh, our enemies using Israel and her people as bargaining chips. None of this changes anything. Okay. You know, true reality true reality is the sovereign will of God. All human plans and intentions to do anything else is but a vain effort to thwart his will and that is a very foolish and dangerous thing to attempt. Okay. And you know, it's one thing, church, for an unredeemed world to stake out that position. Okay. But for those Jews who profess to trust God's chosen, uh, who profess to be rather God's chosen, and for those Gentiles who profess to trust the Hebrew Messiah for eternal salvation, to deny that the promise to Abraham remains intact is all the more egregious. Okay. Let us vow never to turn our backs on God's word or Israel, regardless of what we perceive it might cost us in friendships, even in family relationships, because our relationship with the Lord trumps it all. Well, in verse 5, the Lord makes a promise directly to Joshua. No one will usurp him. Just as there were time after time for Moses that the people mutinied, committed rebellions, elders challenged his leadership, his own family grumbled against him. There were many battles against foreign enemies that put Moses in harm's way. And though they're only hinted at, there were plots against his life. But the Lord did not allow Moses to be dethroned or cast aside. Okay. So God says, it will be for you, Joshua. 
Okay. The Lord says he'll be with Joshua just as he was with Moses, that Joshua will not be replaced or overthrown. And as we'll see by the end of the book, he was not. Okay. With Joshua understanding that he has attained a position that cannot be defeated by any man, and he will not be removed by the Lord, Joshua is told to have courage. And he is to have this courage regarding two specific things, the land and the law. First, the land. It, it was not simply going to be handed over to Joshua. Israel would have to fight for it. Israel would have to make holy war instituted by Jehovah against these wicked tenants of God's land that needed to be physically evicted. Joshua is going to have his bad days. Okay? Lots of Israelites are going to be maimed and killed in this process. However, he is to always remember that the Lord is simply allowing his divine plan to be carried out and Joshua is to use a combination of his own best efforts plus God's guidance to ultimately achieve victory. Now the second area Joshua is to be courageous in is doing the law, the Torah. Joshua is to observe and see to it that Israel observes God's law. This too will take great and steady courage because just as it happened for Moses, Many of the people of Israel are going to balk. They're going to fight the truth of Torah, tooth and nail. Okay. Joshua, as Moses, is going to grow weary from constantly exhorting and confronting his people to stay faithful to the one God and to his Torah. You know, many of you listening and reading these words have already experienced such a thing in your lives. You're constantly being explained to, to uh, being forced to explain yourselves. You're constantly accused of being legalistic, of abandoning grace, of choosing law to save you, or being in some kind of a cult. Some of you have been accused of the unforgivable crime of trying to become Jews. Okay? Or worse, claiming that Jesus was actually a Jew. I mean, when most of our Christian friends are quite certain he was a light-skinned European born with a Greek name. Is that not true? I mean, it gets tiring and at times quite discouraging to face these things day after day. But the Lord says to have good courage. Not to have perfectly steadfast emotions. Nor to think that on occasion... An inevitable defeat from time to time means that he's abandoned you. The battle is going to be long. Your entire life, actually. And at times it's going to be dangerous and it's going to be frightening. Like Joshua, you're going to have your good days and you're going to have your bad days. In fact, I think that on one level, the story of Joshua battling for Canaan is the model for our lifelong battle on earth as God's redeemed. Okay. Our so-called walk with God is more similar to a protracted holy war that ends only when the Lord ends it at a place called Har Megiddo, Armageddon. And we're going to have brief periods of elation and victory followed by longer periods of hard labor and difficult battles, some of it ending in what is apparent to most people is defeat. But it's not. It's just God carrying out his plan. To expect anything else is to set ourselves up for losing hope and maybe even our faith. Okay? The Lord was readying Joshua for his rigors and for the harsh realities that lay ahead of him. But for Joshua and for us, ultimate victory is already assured. That's a done deal. And at verse 10, the dynamics now take a strong turn. Up until this point, the Lord has been instructing and encouraging Joshua. Now it's time to act. Okay. Joshua begins by issuing his first orders 
to the officers of his army, who are also leaders of the camp of Israel. Step one, get organized, get prepared. Israel's to make ready to break camp, and so they must gather food and supplies, uh, because in three days, it says, they're going to move towards the Jordan in Canaan. Now, I've been asked in the past, is Jordan, Yarden, okay, a Hebrew word? And if so, what does it mean? Well, it is Hebrew, and it means descender from Dan, as in descending, going down. In other words, the river Jordan descends, it flows down from the city of Dan. Now, some of you have been with me on tour, and we've actually seen what is called the Grotto of Peneus, that is essentially the headwaters of the Jordan. Now, the name was eventually shortened to the Grotto of Pan, all right, and is located at Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you're paying attention, what I just said should prick your ears because the river is named after the tribe of Dan, but it's going to be a century or more after the death of Moses before Dan ever occupies the headwaters of this river that's named after them. Okay. Obviously, then, Yardan is a much later name for that river, so it has been inserted into the Bible over time in order that people will know what river it is they're talking about. Okay. What was the Jordan's former name before it was called the Jordan? The name the Canaanites probably used? I've tried to discover it, and I've never been able to find it. Okay. This practice of substituting newer names for the ancient names and rivers and places and cities is usual for the Bible. And as it's been copied and edited over the centuries, very often the newer names for a place are inserted in place of the older names. Now Joshua continues giving orders in verse 12. And just as the nine and a half tribes are preparing to cross the Jordan, so it is now time for those two and a half tribes who now claim the land on the eastern bank of the Jordan as their inheritance to provide that allotment of troops that they pledged they would when Moses was still alive. And the civilian populations of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh were not asked to come along. In fact, only a portion of the available fighting men of those two and a half tribes were to come. But those who came were to be the crack troops, the best. And here's where it gets dicey, but it's not really apparent until you read between the lines. These troops were obligated to go, but for how long? Verse 15 says, until the Lord has given your brethren rest. So these troops who really had nothing personal to gain, I mean, they'd already received their inheritance. They already had their land. It was already conquered and they were settling in it. They had to fight alongside their brethren until all the other tribes had conquered the regions assigned to them. How long was this going to take? Who knew? Not only that, who would make the determination as to what constituted a sufficient enough victory and state of stability for those troops to be released to go home? I mean, does all of this sound kind of familiar from what you're hearing in the news today? I mean, the problems we're facing in Iraq, trying to determine when our troops can come home based on determining when a sufficient level of safety and of security has happened. It's also based on when the indigenous army, the Iraqi army, is able to handle the nation's security on its own. See, these questions and dilemmas, this kind of question and dilemma, aren't just for modern times. Okay. They've always been applied to national interests and to warfare. Joshua and the various Israelite tribes with their differing priorities and agendas had to sort this out and it was a very delicate matter. Now the answer was that Joshua would determine when those troops could lay down their weapons, cross back over the Jordan, go home, their pledge fulfilled. And the problem is that Joshua's authority 
over those two and a half tribes who had taken their inheritance outside of the promised land, on the east side of the Jordan River is quite ambiguous. Okay. Is Joshua to have the same absolute authority over them as he does over the nine and a half tribes who are going to possess the land inside the promised land? Are those tribes who refused their inheritance inside the promised land still going to be as much a part of the Israeli tribal confederacy as those who accepted it? This was a very real and critical political problem of some proportion for Joshua. If those two and a half tribes refused to recognize Joshua's leadership, there would be a real possibility of war between those nine and a half tribes against the two and a half. At the same moment, Israel was trying to conquer dozens of Canaanite tribes and city-states. The entire endeavor would have been thrown into doubt. In fact, towards the end of the book of Joshua, we're going to read where warfare between those two groups came within an eyelash of actually happening. Well, thank the Lord for small favors. The two and a half tribes respond in verses 16 and 17 that they will do all that they had promised to Moses and that they will submit to Joshua just as though he was Moses. Okay. By the way, we're going to read more. As we read more of Joshua, we'll find that indeed they stayed true to their word. Well, let me also briefly comment on the use of the word rest, which we're going to see a lot of in Joshua. In Hebrew, this word is nuach, N-U-A-C-H. And this was used, this word was used when the leaders of the two and a half tribes agreed to help their brethren obtain rest, nuah, in their allotted territories. Now, up to now, the primary term we've seen used to speak of the redemption of Israel was inheritance. They would inherit the land. But now we begin to see more and more scriptural use of the term rest. And of course, we'll see the term rest used as a focal point of redemption in the New Testament. Now, the kind of rest that Nuah speaks to is divine deliverance. It also speaks to a ceasing of vigorous labors. Rest is a promise made to God's people, just as much as the inheritance of the land was a promise. The Sabbath that began at the beginning of the world was all about rest. And it was about the Lord resting. The Sabbath, gave to Mo the Sabbath given to Moses was about rest. And it was about mankind resting. Isaiah spoke of rest. Nuah, as applying to the good life that an obedient people of God would reasonably expect. Rest even became a term applied to God's prophets when they obtained the Holy Spirit so that they could speak God's message to God's people. And of course, we read of the Holy Spirit, Spirit doing what? Resting upon various men and kings so that the Lord could use them for the, his kingdom purposes. Who could ever forget the vivid scene of Jesus being baptized by John the Immerser when the Holy Spirit came down as a dove? And what did it do? It rested upon Jesus. Or when at Shavuot, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came as tongues of fire. And what did it do? It rested upon the heads of the ordinary Jews who believed on the Lord Yeshua for salvation. Okay. Rest was now going to be front and center as both a means and a goal for redemption. Now it's good for us to see that what has been established by the writer of Joshua is that Israel, all 12 tribes, are unified in purpose at this point. 
Okay. Even though some Israelites will live outside of the promised land and therefore have different circumstances to deal with in their daily lives and their brethren who lives to the west side of the Jordan, a unity has been affirmed. A unity that centers on Yehovah their God and on their single leader, Joshua. We also see how godly leadership is intended to operate when the leaders and the people are looking as one towards their supreme commander, the Lord God Almighty. A paradigm is established that has at its heart an organization whereby one man commands several officers who themselves each command more, who then go out among the people and bring one message in one spirit to a people prepared to accept it so that all will march in an orderly fashion towards God's ordained goal. This paradigm is a wonderful model for the church. We live dispersed throughout the world in many lands with varying circumstances and daily realities. We are Jews and we are Gentiles. We have varying agendas. We live under a wide range of political and economic systems. Hundreds of cultural and societal traditions have been developed revolving around particular languages and centuries of national history. We are different colors, sizes, shapes. Joshua wondered how he was going to keep a group of 12 tribes each with their own tribal interests reigning supreme, soon to be geographically separated together in spirit and with the common purpose to establish a kingdom of God on earth. How was he going to do this? The key for Joshua was the same as it is for the church, to maintain a common identity. And that identity is of a people set apart from the world who trust the God of Israel and who work to follow and achieve his will. That's our identity. But it was also meant that a common understanding of what the God of Israel's will amounted to was necessary. And as has been the emphasis since Mount Sinai, the primary source of knowing and establishing God's will for all of his people was the Torah. Let's move on to chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Yahashua the son of Nun secretly sent two spies from Shittim with these instructions. Go inspect the land and Jericho. They left and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahav, where they spent the night. The king of Jericho was told about it. Tonight, some men from Israel came here to reconnoiter the land. The king of Jericho sent a message to Rahav. And bring out the men who came to you and are staying in your house. Because they've come to reconnoiter all the land. However, the woman, after taking the two men and hiding them, replied... Yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know who they were or where they'd come from. The men left around the time they had shut the gate, when it was dark. Where they went, I don't know. But if you chase after them quickly, you might overtake them. Actually, she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them under some stalks of flax she had spread out there. The men pursued them all the way to the fords at the Jordan. As soon as the pursuit party had left, the gate was shut. The two men had not yet laid down when she returned to the roof and said to them, I know that Adonai has given you the land. Fear of you has fallen on us. Everyone in the land is terrified at the thought of you. We've heard now how Adonai dried up the water in the Sea of Suf ahead of you when you left Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorai on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, that you completely destroyed them. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts failed us. Because of you, everyone's in a state of depression. For Adonai, your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So please swear to me by Adonai that since I have been kind to you, 
you will also be kind to my father's family. Give me some evidence of your good faith, that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, and sisters, and all who are theirs, so that we won't be killed. And the men replied to her, Our lives are certainly worth yours, provided you don't betray our mission. So when Adonai gives us the land, we'll treat you kindly and in good faith. Then she lowered them by a rope through the window since her house abutted the city wall. Indeed, it was actually built into it. And she told them, head for the hills so that the pursuit party won't get their hands on you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers have returned. After that, you can go your way. The men said to her, we will not be guilty of violating the oath you made us swear, provided that when we enter the land, you tie this piece of scarlet cord in the window you let us down from, and you gather together in your house your father, mother, brothers, and your father's entire household. If anyone goes out the doors of your house into the streets, he'll be responsible for his own blood and will be held guiltless. But everyone who stays with you in the house, we will be responsible for his blood if anyone lays a hand on him. However, if you say a word about this business of ours, then we're free of our oath that you made us swear. According to your words, so be it, she said, and sent them away. And as they departed, she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They left, arrived in the hill, stayed there three days until the pursuers had returned. The pursuers had searched for them all the way but hadn't found them. Then the two men returned. Descending from the hills, they crossed over and came to Yahushua, the son of Nun, and reported everything that had happened to them. Truly Adonai has handed over the land to us, they told Yahushua. Everyone in the land is terrified that we're coming. This chapter incorporates, I think, some of the greatest drama and most memorable characters in all the Bible. Okay. The Battle of Jericho and this ironic female hero, a Canaanite prostitute, Rahab, who professed faith in Israel's God. Jericho is even today an amazing place. It's a little dicey now to venture there, and for Westerner in particular, because it's, a palace, it's in Palestinian Arab-controlled territory, even though, frankly, many of the local Arabs remain very friendly and grateful for your business at this run-down village, where only eight or nine years ago it was really a thriving tourist site. Okay. Fortunately, the tell of the ancient city of Jericho is a few hundred yards away from the modern-day village of Jericho. Thus, extensive excavation of it's been accomplished. And with a bit of bravery, a visitor can look down upon the walls of that ancient city. Most of them collapsed, some of them intact, and I'm sure at least some of you may have done so. I know Becky and I have. I had that privilege back in the early 90s, and you know, I really didn't want to leave that place. I mean, for me, it's second only to the old city of Jerusalem on the list of awe-inspiring places to be in, in all of Israel. Now, it's generally agreed that Jericho first existed before the Great Flood. Okay? And as is common among ancient sites, it's been destroyed and rebuilt on numerous occasions. Modern archaeology confirms the location of Jericho. So there is no doubt that what we see today is completely authentic. Okay? It's the lowest city in the world. 800 feet below sea level. So you can imagine what happened when God destroyed the world with that 40-day deluge. Jericho is about six miles north of the Dead Sea. It's about a two-hour walk from the Jordan River. Some of the walls that one can see today are about 3,500 years old, although under those walls are older walls that date to 5,000 years and below them are stone structures that date to nearly 10,000 years. Okay. In fact, it also appears that from the time of the destruction that we'll read about, time of destruction of Jericho, that is, that we'll read about in Joshua, the city was actually abandoned from that time 
until around the 7th or 8th century BC. And then it was rebuilt only to again be abandoned for several more centuries, inhabited again, and then the cycle repeated right on up till today. Now Joshua instructed two spies, advanced scouts really is a better way of looking at them, to go and look over the situation at the first enemy stronghold that Israel was going to encounter after they crossed the Jordan River. Here they were, here, there's Jericho, there's the Jordan River. By now, Israel had moved to this place um, called Shittim, which means acacia trees. Shittim was located on the east bank of the Jordan. Today it's known as Tel El Hamam in the nation of Jordan. Okay. And like Jericho, it too is located about six miles north of the Dead Sea. It's only about seven miles from the Jordan River. So it was the perfect staging ground for Israel to launch its assault of Canaan. Now Joshua, being a very experienced general, knows that he has to have a good idea of what they're up against so that he can formulate a proper battle plan. Now some theologians have actually accused Joshua of lacking faith by his sending out these two spies. And this comes from applying to this event the tone of the story back when the leaders of Israel so many years earlier told Moses that before they'd go into Canaan, they needed to send some scouts to go out and see what sort of opposition they faced. Well, this, this is an error to see it this way. Recall that the 12 spies sent out by Moses, one from each tribe, was because each tribal leader wanted to be properly represented and was not willing to accept the report from someone from another tribe. Therefore, each tribal prince sent his own hand selected man loyal only to him. Okay. In a nutshell, we saw that those 12 spies were not going to Canaan in order that battle plans would be drawn up. They were going because of fear and trepidation on the part of the leaders of Israel. This was not something Moses wanted to do or that God ordered. Rather, this was an act of skepticism. This was an act that demonstrated they didn't trust the promises of God. The leaders of Israel preferred to make their own decisions as to whether they'd even go into the promised land. <clears throat> the result was, of course, that the ten, ten of the spies said that to attack Canaan would be suicide. Two had a different opinion. All twelve agreed that the enemy was numerous and well fortified, but ten of them said that this reality meant that they should forgo their attempt to enter. The other two said, now, God's promised this land to us, so it makes no difference how well prepared the Canaanites are, how many there are of them, and that Israel should just go forward and claim God's promise to Abraham. We all know the results of that foray. Right? And the final decision that ended in that generation dying off without ever being allowed to set foot in the promised land. Well, that's not what's happening here at Jericho. This sending out of the two spies was not about deciding whether or not to attack. It was just to add information on how to attack. Notice that even the identification of the two spies and the tribes they represented were unimportant enough to record. Okay. Rather, they, they were going on this mission, these two, on behalf of all Israel and for Joshua, not individual tribal leaderships. Okay. This was all about Joshua's concern to be diligent and his duty and careful with the precious lives of his people whom the Lord had entrusted to him. Joshua's instruction was to view both Jericho and the land. This only meant the land between Shittim and Jericho. That's all I was talking about. The idea was for them to scout a good route right? and to determine the strength and readiness of Jericho's defenses. It is emphasized that the spies were sent out secretly, meaning that only Joshua, the spies, and perhaps a couple of his closest officers even knew about this. Okay. This is in contrast to the story of the 12 spies sent by committee 38 years earlier and the people anxiously awaiting for their re 
turn in the report. Well, the two spies arrive at the city of Jericho and immediately they go to the house of a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. Now, some prominent Jewish scholars such as Rashi say that she may not have actually been a prostitute because the word, the Hebrew word zona didn't necessarily indicate a harlot, although it was a common usage of the term. Some Bible translations follow Rashi and Josephus, by the way, and say that Rahab was not a prostitute, but rather an innkeeper. Actually, as we gain more understanding of the, middle, of the ancient Middle Eastern cultures of that time, it could very well have been that she was actually both. Uh, the narrative implies that the house where she lived and the spies that entered her property, um, that it was hers, it belonged to her. This would have been a very unusual situation for a prostitute. Okay. The, the earliest inns whereby weary travelers could stop for a day or two were always inside city walls. They were little more than a place of shelter with some kind of bed or mat available that afforded them protection from bandits and wild animals. And of course, it provided the opportunity for the company of women. Right? Prostitution was not at all seen as a bad or immoral thing in most of the world. It was as common as most any other trade or craft. Okay? It was so common that pagan priesthood, priesthoods even opened their own brothels as a means to earn money to run the enormous number of temples dedicated to their equally norm, enormous number of gods. Okay. Thus, like so many of the laws and regulations that we'll see in Torah, the outlawing of common and religious prostitution among the Israelites by Yehovah was yet another means of separating Israel from all other peoples. Unfortunately, as we're going to see throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments, prostitution remained embedded in Hebrew society even though it was looked down upon. That the house inside the walls of Jericho that the spies visited was a known place for travelers is evident by its logical and convenient location to the city wall and the city gates. When the king sent his soldiers to inquire about these two strangers, they immediately went to Rahab because her establishment was the town inn where any traveler was most likely to stay. We're going to stop here and take up the story of Jericho, Rahab, and the spies.